All right, all right, here we go. I was uh, telling someone uh, the other day that uh, at once a year, uh, I, I have a sermon that I cough all the way through. And you might experience that this morning, but we'll see. So um, I got tissues for my nose and water and cough drops. We're going to try to make it through. Thank you, Cincinnati weather. Hey, man. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you have your Bibles, grab them. The book of Romans is where we're going to be continuing through Romans chapter 5. Remember, as we've talked about, the book of Romans is one big argument that Paul is making, answering the question why the gospel is the only thing that can answer our deepest problems and make sense of the world. And so, if you'll remember, for the first three chapters, really two and a half chapters, Paul, said, Paul gives us the bad news. He tells us what our deepest problems are. He tells us what the issues are, that we're sinners, that we're all guilty before God. Uh, and whether you have all the information, whether you know God or not, you are without excuse. Whether you have the law or not, you're without excuse. But then, at the second half of chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul begins to lay out the good news. That we can be made right with God through and forgiven, receive righteousness through this idea of justification. That we said was, justification is just as if I'd never... Oh, y'all gotta wake up. Just as if I never, and then just as if I always, there we go. Somebody was listening a couple weeks ago. And so through the work of Christ alone and our faith in the work of Christ alone, not generic faith, but faith in Christ, we can be saved and that righteousness is credited to us. And so now in chapter 5, we see two things as this argument continues. We see one, the cosmic view of salvation. That's the the 30,000 foot view of salvation. And then we're going to see the blessings and implications and applications of this salvation played out. So, let's start off by reading together chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 12 and go through 21 to begin. We're actually going to do the second half first and then the first half. So, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life of the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Augustine, church father from about 400 A.D., 
um, was not raised in a Christian home. He was a pretty bad kid and hung out with a bunch of bad kids. He, he writes about this story in his book called The Confessions. And he was running around with these bad kids one night, and they were playing some kind of game in the street. Uh, you imagine 400 AD, dirt road probably. I don't know what they're playing. They're playing some game in the street, and they're on their way home. This is the kind of trouble you get in in 400 AD. They're on their way home, and they notice a pear tree in someone else's yard, and uh, they decide they're not hungry, and the pears that don't actually look that appetizing, they're not that great, but they decide they want to go and take a bunch of them. So they go, and they take a bunch of these guys, sneak on this dude's property, steal a bunch of his pears, and then they don't even eat them, but they throw them and give them to the pigs and throw them away. Augustine writes later that this event haunted him. It haunted him, but at the moment, they loved doing it because they loved doing what was forbidden. It haunted him because he delighted in doing what was forbidden. And I think we can all look at moments in our lives when we have chosen to do the wrong thing, because we were attracted to doing the wrong thing. It was an allure and a desire to do the wrong thing, even knowing it. And so I want to start out asking you a question. That may seem like semantics, but this is an actually very, very important question. Do you sin because you're a sinner? Or are you a sinner because you sin? I'm going to say that again. Do you sin? Do you make choices to sin in your daily life because that's who you are, because you're a sinner? Or are you a sinner because you sinned? We know that all of us in this room are sinners. That's not in question. We've all sinned. We know that. But why is that the case? Why are we sinners? Why is it that none of us in this world, have, besides Jesus, obviously, have ever lived a sinless life? Why is that impossible? You sin because deeply in your bones, deeply in your DNA somewhere, at the core of who we are, do we sin because we're sinners, that's who we are? Is that why we sin? Or do you become a sinner after the first time you sinned in your life? It does not take long for parents to learn that their sweet little bundles of joy, rays of sunshine, are actually deeply sinful. Amen? But did you become a sinner the first time you said no to your parents or pitched a fit through a temper tantrum? Did you become a sinner in, in that first moment? Or was there something in you from before you took your first breath that made you a sinner? Whatever we feel like the answer is to that question doesn't matter. Matters is what the Bible tells us. So look at verse 12 with me. Kirby, you got to be on this. I'm going to cough, and you got to be ready to hit that mute button so I don't break everybody's ears, all right? I'm going to give a little one out. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So according to this verse, sin came into the world through one man, right? Our forefather, Adam, all right, Adam in the garden, uh, who was at the moment when he was created, he was righteous, he had no sin, he was going to live forever in this perfect Garden of Eden, this perfect relationship with God, but Adam disobeyed God in the garden, he ate the fruit he wasn't supposed to eat, and through that one act of disobedience, his one mistake, he brought sin into the world, and with sin came death, and not just death for Adam, but death spread to everyone immediately, 
And the, and the verse says, the death spread to everyone immediately, and that because all sinned. So Adam sinned, death reigned, death moved to everyone, and because everyone else sinned as well. You see, you sin because at your very core, you are a sinner. You sin because you're a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sinned. You sin because at your very core, you are a sinner. As David would later write in the Psalms, he says he was conceived in sin, meaning he was a sinner while he was yet in the womb. This is the doctrine often referred to as original sin, original sin. But how is it that Paul can know that everyone sinned, right, because there's going to be people who are born after him? How is it that Paul can write that Adam sinned and so death went to everyone because everyone has sinned? How does Paul know that everyone coming after him would still continue to do that? Because Paul understands something that we have a hard time with as modern Western people. Um, As modern Western people, we are very individualistic, right? When When I did the thumb war thing, everybody wants to stand on their own two feet and not let Marley play for them. Her fault shouldn't be my fault. I stand on my own two feet. My parents' sins aren't my sins. No one speaks for me but me. But Paul and those in the ancient world did not think that way. They knew that that wasn't actually true. They were a community. They were a patriarchal society where the actions of the head or the actions of the leader or the actions of the one would represent the many. Let me give you some examples. Do you remember Achan in the Old Testament? Uh, when God tells his people to go into Jericho and take out the city, you know, march around it, play all the trumpets, and the walls are going to fall and all that. He tells them, when you take it out, do not plunder. Do not take any of the gold. Do not take any of the jewelry. Do not take any of their wealth for yourself. We're going we're gonna to burn it all up. They're going to get rid of it. You don't take any of it. I will provide for you. You're not going to plunder. And so they go, they take out Jericho, but Achan, he plunders a little bit. He gets some, some stuff, he gets some gold and some whatever, and he, he takes some stuff and he hides it and buries it under his tent. Well, then they go to the next battle, which was this little bitty arm, a little bitty country called Ai, and should not have been a big deal. This is like facing the Peewee squad, all right? This is like the Bengals facing the Jets. They should have won. And yet... They go in there, and they should have demolished this people, but yeah, AI won. And then they come back, and they're like, how did they do We just defeated Jericho. How did this little puny nation defeat us? How did that happen? And then they realize someone's disobeyed God. Somebody took what they weren't supposed to take. They figure out it's real to Joshua that it, that it is Achan. They go in his tent. They find the stuff, and what do they do? They kill him. They kill his wife. They kill his children. They kill his whole clan. I don't know if that means grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. They kill a lot of people connected to that dude. They kill all his animals. They pile it all up, burn it, and put rocks on top of all of it. The one man's actions stood for the many. His failure became his whole family's failure. David and Goliath. When David goes and he fights Goliath, you really understand what's happening. He's going... He's just been anointed king, even though he's not king yet, he's been anointed king. You got a hill over here and a hill over there, two armies on each side, and they say, hey, we're going to have 1v1. 1v1 fight, whoever wins, the whole army wins. 
And Goliath comes down, he's yelling, and no one wants to go fight because they're scared. But David goes to fight, and when he fights, he's fighting on behalf of all of Israel. He's fighting as if he is Israel, so that whoever, whoever wins, if David wins, his victory is as if Israel went and fought for themselves. It is given to them as if they did it. It is their victory. Or, if you, if you uh, the Israel, whenever they, you know, if you read the Old Testament, Israel is always going through seasons of faithfulness and seasons of rebellion, right? Like, they'll worship God in one chapter, next chapter they're worshiping Baal. Worshiping God again, then they're worshiping the Ashtaroth. They're worshiping God again, and then they're, all, they're just doing crazy stuff. Right? And most of that was about the king. And however God viewed the king, whether he viewed the king as righteous or unrighteous, faithful or unfaithful, he viewed all of Israel. When the king was righteous, God saw Israel as righteous. When the king was unfaithful, he saw all of Israel as unfaithful. However God viewed the king, the one represented the many. If you've ever seen the Hunger Games, you might understand this. The Hunger Games, uh, there are 13 districts, and all of these districts were to send two uh, people from their district to represent the whole nation in this big game called the Hunger Games, where the contestants would fight to survive, they would, you know, scavenge food, and they would have to fight all the other contestants to the death. And the last one standing won, and they would, you know, receive all these riches, and the big thing was they would receive food and help for their district back home. And so they went and fought and represented their home. If they won, their whole district, their whole hometown would, would prosper, would be blessed. The one represented the many. And so when Adam stands in the Garden of Eden and he disobeys God, understand Adam is acting as what theologians would call our federal head. He is representing us. He is standing as if we were him. He, standed for, he stood for all of us. He represented us as if we were him. So in your notes, right, Adam represents us in the garden, standing for us as if he is us. Adam's actions became our actions. His disobedience, our disobedience. His guilt becomes our guilt. So much so that it is accurate to say, if it were possible for you to live your whole life and never sin, from the moment you're conceived, from the moment you're born, that you never sinned your whole life, you would still be found guilty before God because you are first and foremost condemned and found guilty because you are in Adam. His guilt is your guilt. He represented us. You see, we sin because we're sinners. What Adam did not only made us guilty, but it corrupted us. It broke us. And so from the very found, from the very beginnings of our life, we are sinners. And so we sin out of, because that's who we are. Adam stood for us and he failed and his failure brought to us. His curse becomes our curse. Now there may be this temptation for you to think, man, that's not fair. That's not fair. Why do the actions of the one man count against me? I mean, sometimes we might think, man, if I could have changed places with Adam, I wouldn't have failed. I wouldn't have done it. But in some ways, that's God's point. That no matter which one of us stood in for Adam, we would have all made the same choice. And while it may be normal for us to react to think that that's not fair, and so we should actually be very grateful 
that this reality is true. We should be grateful that the actions of the one can, in fact, represent the many. That one can stand for everyone else. Because though Adam failed, the Bible tells us that there is a second Adam. A second Adam. Look at verse 19 with me. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You were made sinners by his disobedience. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You see, Jesus is the second Adam, and he comes to do what Adam failed to do. Jesus comes to represent us, stand for us, and act on our behalf. That is the reason, that's the one reason why it's so important that Jesus never sinned. Right? Because he's representing us. It also helps you understand why is it that Jesus, after he was baptized, goes into the wilderness for 40 days to fast and to be tempted by the devil. Why is he doing that? Because Jesus needed to step into Adam's shoes to go into his own garden and have that same serpent come to him and tempt him just as Adam was tempted. But where Adam failed, Jesus wouldn't. Where Adam gave in, Jesus fought back and relented and did not sin. You see, Jesus is the true and better Adam who, though tempted by the devil in a much tougher garden, did not give in to that temptation and sin. Why, do, why did he do this? Why is this important? Because those of us who have faith in Christ, that action that Jesus did is now true of you. If you are in Christ, that is true of you. He's the second Adam. He's the true and better Adam. Because just as Adam's failures become your failures, so do Christ's victories become your victories. When you belong to Jesus, everything that is true of Jesus is now true of you. All right? So when you belong to Jesus, everything that's true about Jesus becomes true about you. So what does that mean? Well, just as it is true that you, because you're in Adam, that you took the fruit off that tree in the Garden of Eden, you ate it because Adam did it. It is also true that if you are in Christ, you know what that means? It means that you stood in a wilderness, stared down the devil, was tempted, and did not sin. You did that because Christ did it for you, because you're in him. Now, because that's true of him, it's true of you. Why is it that when you are saved, when you are justified, that it, it is that you just as if you would always obey? Why is it that when you're saved, not only are we forgiven of our sins, but his righteousness becomes ours? Why does God look at you like you have always obeyed him? Not that you've just not sinned, but that you've always done everything right. Because Jesus actually did always obey God. And he does it on our behalf. He always obeyed his mom and dad because he knew we wouldn't. He never lusted after a woman because he knew we would. He never stole anything because he knew we would. And his perfect obedience is granted to us as if we did it ourselves. His work becomes our work. So while we may not love the idea that someone else can represent us, uh, that we have to pay the price for someone else's actions, we should actually rejoice and praise God that that is the case, that the one can stand for the many, because Jesus stood for us. 
He did what we would never be able to do ourselves, and he gave it to us as, gave it to us as if we did it. The one can stand for the many, and Jesus stands for us. His obedience becomes our obedience. Why is this important? For one, it tells us that our hope can never be in trying to be good enough. Right? We are sinners to our core. We cannot fix that. He has to fix it. We were failures from the moment we were conceived. And we now have a sinful nature that longs for and loves to run away from God and run towards sin. We are broken at the deepest levels. But it also tells us that we can actually rest. When you're in Christ, you can actually take a deep breath. You can actually rest because you can you actually have hope because you've actually been set free from your past because of what Jesus has done for us in living perfectly. You don't and never will stand in your own strength and your own merit. You will always stand in his. And that's freeing because when you fail, no matter how many times you fail, you can rest knowing that not are you just forgiven, but you're safe and secure standing in his obedience, standing in his life. Not just forgiven. Sometimes when someone forg- when you do something wrong and somebody forgives you, you kind of feel like, man, I know they forgave me, but like, I still feel like there's this tension there. I still feel like we're not really over it or past it. Man, when you're in Christ, you can rest knowing that he's not just forgiven you, but he sees you as someone who's always done the right thing, even though you haven't. You see, not only did Jesus die for you, he lived for you, and we can rest in his life, live perfectly on our behalf. This is the 30,000-foot view of salvation. That one man screwed up the world and one man is setting it right. And so if it is true that everyone, that everything that is true of Jesus is true of you who trust in him, what would that mean for us? If it's true that we can be justified, what does that change? How would that change the way we think and live? Paul gives us a few applications of what that might look like. Let's look at verses 1 through 5 together. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the first thing Paul would say, if if this is true of you, now let me be clear. What I'm about to tell you is for people who are in Christ, who don't just have generic faith that God exists, but faith in Christ, been united to him by faith, he is their king. These things are true for you. If you are not in Christ, if you just believe in God or you're religious or you think you're a good person, these are not true of you until you come to him. You are either in Adam or you're in Jesus. You're either in Adam or the second Adam. You either stand in Adam's guilt or you stand in Christ's righteousness. You can't have both. You've got to have one or the other. We all start in Adam. We've got to move to Jesus. All right, so the first thing he says is that we have peace with God. Now, when you think of peace, sometimes we might think of that peace is laying on a beach somewhere. There are no kids screaming your name. Can I get an amen? There are no work emails coming through. There is nothing to do. There is no responsibility. Maybe there are people waving palm branches on you. You are drinking a mojito or some non-alcoholic Baptist drink. 
I'm just kidding. <laughs> y'all drinking whatever y'all want to drink. You take it in the sun and the sound of the waves crashing. And you think that's what peace looks like. But that is not the sort of peace Paul has in mind here. Peace means the peace that comes after war. Whenever there is a war between two nations, there are only a few ways for it to end. Either you kill everyone on the other side, or the two sides come to terms and sign a treaty, both making concessions. Or one country submits and yields to the other, giving in to their demands or becoming a part of that country altogether. Well, since Adam fell in the garden, humanity has been at war with God. God is the rightful king who reigns and sits on his throne, the rightful judge and ruler of the world. And yet Adam, to us, we all seek to rule our own lives. We all want to sit on our own thrones and be the king of our own lives and our own domain. And we are at war with who should be sovereign over our lives, who should be in control, who is the rightful king. He says he's the king of our lives. We say, no, we are. We want to be the sovereigns. And so, therefore, we are at war with God, a war over who should reign. And so Paul says that when you come to Christ, when you are made right with God, the war is over. The war is over, that now there is peace. Well, how is it that there is peace? Because when you come to Christ, there is no longer a battle over who's in charge. There is no longer a war over who is the sovereign and who is in control. There is no longer a fight over who sits on the throne of your life. There is peace because in coming to Christ, you have yielded. You have submitted. You have surrendered. You've waved the white flag and said, all that is mine is yours. Command me, O king. We've given our lives to him. We've handed it over. So peace with God comes because we have submitted to his kingship in our life. Coming to Christ is a declaration that the war is over and that I belong to God. The second thing he says is that we stand in grace. Now, what does that mean? Well, remember what grace means first. Grace means unmerited favor. It means that you have favor with God that you did not earn. You have a standing with God. You have chips stored up with God. You have favor with God that you did not earn. Tim Keller says, I love this quote, y'all. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is the child of the king. The only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is the child of the king. And it is that sort of favor that we have with God. So we know that to come to God, we must receive grace. But now Paul is saying that we stand in grace. We stand in this unmerited favor. Meaning, grace isn't behind us. It's not one and done. It means we are standing in it, never getting past it, never getting over it, never getting beyond it. Grace is something we bask in. We stand in it. I think about people who stomp on those grapes, you know, on those big things. We just, it's good grace, man. We just standing in it, wallowing in it. We have the continual favor of God in our lives, no matter the ups or downs of our walk with the Lord. Grace is constantly ours in Christ. We stand in it. Third, he says that we rejoice in hope. Now listen to this verse. He says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, 
We rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love is important to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Notice how many times he says hope and rejoice. First he's saying, look, if you are in Christ, not only is your past no longer a problem and you have peace with God, no longer is your present secure because you stand in grace, but your future is secure. Your future is secure because you have hope. And hope in the Bible is certainty, right? It is going to happen. We don't have to hope. Like, maybe it's going to happen. It is, this will happen. That is the kind of hope that we have. Hope that we will enter in the kingdom of God forever. And it is hope like that which enables us to navigate suffering. And so when you are cheated, when you are wronged, when you experience injustice, when you experience loss or hardship, it will be hard. But you will get through it. Because your hope is not in a God that wants to throw away this world, wants to burn it up and just take you up to heaven and say, forget that broken place. Your hope is in a God of resurrection. A God who calls life out of death. A God who heals all wounds. The God who rights all wrongs. The God who sets the world right again. And the God who will bring back all of those who are in Christ back from the dead to full health forever. And so we can look to that hope of what God is going to do. There was a college team I think it was LSU, but I can't remember, who, uh, who went to the College World Series. And uh, uh, they won the College World Series. And uh, at the end of the game, the guy took a water, his water bottle and he went to the mound and he got some dirt and he filled his water bottle up with the dirt from the mound. While well, I got this, I'm going to take a drink of water. And so he kept that with him. And the next season, when they would struggle, when they would have a hard time, when they'd lose a game, when there'd be an error, when they'd look like they were behind, he'd say, guys, get a whiff of this. Smell that. Because that's where we're going. Smell that dirt. We've been there before. That's where we're headed. It was this reminder that no matter how hard it gets, here's a whiff of where we're going. When things get hard, when suffering comes, we know what our future holds. We know what's coming. Navigating suffering is still hard. But Paul says that suffering has a purpose. It produces endurance and character, he says. You see, God is using the trials and the difficulties in your life to forge you into something. To form you and mold you into something beautiful and radiant and glorious. I love the way C.S. Lewis says this. He says, we're all becoming one of two things. Either you're becoming something so hideous and terrible that if you were to see that future self, you'd run in fear. Or you are becoming something so beautiful and glorious that if you could see your future self, you'd be tempted to bow in worship. And so God is forming us and, and molding us into this future glory. And he's using our trials and our sufferings to do it. And what he's doing is taking all those jagged edges of your life and sanding them down. Some of them are bigger. He's got to get a chisel out and knock them off. Got to get the planer out. And, and he's using these, this, this heat, these hard things in your life to knock off all that stuff until his beautiful, perfect creation remains. That is no longer marked and marred by Adam and his sin and our sin. But it's perfect in the way he designed it. 
Michelangelo, who sculpted uh, the, the, the statue David, was asked, how did you, from this big marble stone, carve this beautiful statue of David? How would you do it? And he said, it was simple. I just removed everything that wasn't him. And God is removing everything in us that is marred and stained and broken by the sin in us. Until that the only thing remains is the perfect image of God that he desired to create in us from the beginning. So he's got to chisel, he's got to sand, he's got to send suffering sometimes, but he's making us glorious. And so we can rejoice and hope even in the midst of suffering. For, he says, Man, if we're in Christ, we know a love like no other. Now, this is, this is a super popular, this is a well-known passage of Scripture, but I want to read it. Look at verse 6 with me. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die, but, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is nothing that humbles us more. And at the same time, fills us with gratitude than understanding the love of God on the cross. You've heard me say that this phrase that we're so sinful that Christ had to die, but so loved that he was glad to. This verse brings that to light. You see, uh, first, the cross is an incredibly humbling realization because of the cost. The price on our heads, the ransom on our heads was so high, no money could pay for it. All the thousands of lambs and bulls and goats slaughtered for thousands of years could not pay for it, couldn't even touch it. The cost of your soul was the life of God. In the Hunger Games, there's this great picture of this. When they're drawing randomly, who's going to go fight in the Hunger Games? It's basically a death sentence, right? And Katniss Everdeen watches as her little sister's name is drawn. She can't be like eight years old, and she's walking up to the front, knowing she's going she's gonna to go die. And so what does Katniss do but raise her hand and says, I volunteer as tribute. Me for her. I'll take her place. I'll stand for her. I'll trade places with her. That's exactly what God has done for us. I volunteer as tribute. I will stand for you. I will take your place. I will die your death. He exchanges his life for ours. What a cost. And that cost humbles us, right? Like when God had to die to forgive us, that was the price on our heads. That humbles us. That it took such a price to free us, to break the chains on our wrists and free us from the wrath of God. But at the same time, not only does it humble us, but it gives us incredible gratitude. Because while, while it's, hard, it's reasonable to give your life for a good person, maybe. Maybe you'd give your life for your child or for a good friend. God shows his love for us in that he's willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice for rebels and sinners and evil people like you and me. It isn't a way for us to clean up or get better. He says, warts, stains, brokenness, and all, I got you me for you the love of god is on supreme display that such a high price was willing to be paid for the likes of us it humbles us and it fills us with gratitude and love because we as christians know a love like no one else could possibly understand and finally he says 
Man, if you're in Christ, we exalt in God himself. Verse 11 says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have uh, received reconciliation. You see, God is not a means to an end. We don't come to Jesus so that we might get heaven. We come to Jesus to get God. God is the end in itself. Knowing him, serving him, he is the fount of joy our hearts have, long, our hearts have longed for. The Westminster Catechism says, ask the question, what is the chief end of man? What is your chief end? What is your main purpose in life? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him forever. Our greatest joy is only found in knowing our great God. Our faith should lead us to deep love for God. It should be a daily awaken to see his beauty deeper and deeper. Our salvation, knowing God, should be so full and so rich that it takes a multitude of illustrations and stories and metaphors to even begin to describe his love and our relationship with him. We should begin to see that every gift in our lives, from our health to our families to our friends to the food on our plates to even football, are gifts from the Lord, and that they should only make us love and serve and care for him more and thank the giver of the gifts. And so we exalt in God alone. He is our deepest desire and our closest friend. And so when we face death, we can do it with a smile because we know we're going to meet an old friend. Let's pray. Father, there are some of us in this room that these truths are not true of us because we are in Adam and not in Christ. We are in the first Adam, not the second Adam. We stand guilty and condemned in our own sin and Adam's sin. So, Father, this morning, if that's, if that's anyone in this room, would you, would you give them a new heart, a new mind, would you open their eyes to see the truth, and would you... Work faith in their heart that they might respond and believe, trust you. We're going to be up here as we sing this song. There's going to be some guys on the side. Man, if you don't know Christ, if you're not sure, let us show you. Let us show you that he welcomes sinners. For some of you in this room, these things are true for you, but they don't feel true. And you've got to get them deeper in your heart. That you have peace, that you can rest. That you can suffer and rejoice. That you don't have to be worried that Adam represented you any longer, but Christ did. And that his work really does stand. And no one can knock it down. Not even you. Help us to rest in that truth. If you need to pray about anything this morning, we would love to pray with you. If you need to stand and sing, just let's stand and sing to the Lord. Let's not be worried about lunch. Let's be worried about singing this last song to our King of Kings. Father, be with us. In Christ's name we pray. All those people said, let's stand together.